Some of the topics in this episode are graphic in nature and may be disturbing to some listeners, especially children. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, it's Marisol Nichols, and I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, the Nazarene Fund. Knowing no borders, the Nazarene Fund is a humanitarian organization whose mission is to liberate the captive, free the enslaved, and to rescue, rebuild, and restore lives. To find out more, please visit thenazarenefund.org. Thank you, Nazarene Fund, for all that you do to help those in need. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Marisol Nichols Podcast. I want to thank you all for joining me. And tonight in the studio, again, we have the amazing Tim Ballard. Tim, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Most of our audience know that you are the president of OUR, Operation Underground Railroad. What they don't know is that you are also the CEO of a sister organization called the Nazarene Fund. Can you tell us what the Nazarene Fund is? Sure. So in 2014, 15, during that time, it was always in the news when ISIS was rolling into Syria, parts of Iraq, northern Iraq, and just taking over innocent villages of Christian people, Yazidi folks, people that ISIS believed were obviously less than even subhuman. And they were destroying villages. And to the Yazidi people especially, they killed the men in the villages and took the women and the children and created one of the largest sex markets, trafficking sex markets that we've seen in our generation. Wow. And it's, it's just so sad because everybody should know this, but because it happened so, so far away, and I think people just write off the Middle East as whatever, right. and it's not whatever. These are real people. These are real women. They're real children. And horrible things were happening to them. And so Glenn Beck is watching this happen and decides to start an endeavor. I think he envisioned it something much smaller at first, just how can we just help move people out, give them what they need? And then it kind of just grew a life of its own and just kind of took off and got bigger and bigger and bigger. And a few years later, Glenn asked me to come on board as the CEO. He had helped us start OUR through funding and partnerships. Mm. So there is some overlap. There's certain operations, but the main difference is OUR always works with law enforcement. Right. Always, always, always. That's a, that's fundamental to our mission. The Nazarene Fund, sometimes there is no law enforcement, right? It's not like ISIS right. was going to sign an MOU with us to help us rescue the kids that they kidnapped, right? right? So there's certain cases where things get a little more dicey and it's more almost quasi-military type operations than law right. enforcement necessarily. And we've affected the lives of thousands, tens of thousands of people, moved thousands and thousands out, rescued hundreds of these women and children, even to this day. People don't right. realize. No. ISIS is still alive. I remember you telling me about this and you were showing me pictures of these Yazidi children. Yeah. What to the regular audience out there that doesn't know who they are or what what they are, what group they are. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So the Yazidi people, they're a very peaceful people, impoverished for the most part, but peaceful. And the farmers, agricultural based, and they just have lived for centuries, Hmm. you know, in these little villages just in northern Iraq, in the Nineveh Plains region of Iraq. It's beautiful there. And they get along with the Christians or their neighbors, you know, so the Christian villages who've also been there for centuries, way before the borders and boundaries of, you know, modern day Middle East even were created. These guys were living and and all of a sudden ISIS decides, well, we're going to push off your land. We're going to destroy all the the relics and, and architecture that connects to both Christians historically and Yazidis and turn them into sex slaves. I'll give you a story as an example. So the story of Naveen. 
Okay. And this is a girl who her village was attacked. Her father and brothers almost certainly killed. Her sisters farmed out and her. And she was only 12, 13 years old when this happened and disappeared. The family doesn't see her for years. She's passed around from ISIS commander to ISIS commander. It's a sex market. They use the girls even as currency. I mean, they're, they're young, right? 13 years old. And they're just, they're sex slaves. They're labor slaves. And it got to the point where the mother just was completely just defeated and just thought, what can I do? Her village has been destroyed. What the Nazarene Fund does is we relocate. If the village is just gone, there's no, nothing for them, we'll move them. We've moved them to Canada, to parts of Europe, but mostly Australia has been the country that's the hero country in this whole story. And they've just taken all these Yazidi people. So the mother was on her way out. It had been a couple of years since two or three years since she'd seen her daughter and everyone thought she was dead. In fact, most the intel we were getting is that where we thought she was, that place got blown up. But just as the mom was leaving, we got the intel that Naveen was alive. And through our partners and the Nazarene Fund was able to get her out and actually bring her back to her mom. And I was fortunate enough to actually be there and help get her there and watching this reunion and we have it all filmed you'll see it. I saw it just i mean you see this mother just grab her daughter and it's like okay this is why it's worth it you know this mother who had no hope her baby was dead right and no she's not she's alive and here she is we just we bring you together and and now they're living a happy life in australia and you know naveen's going to school she has aspirations of being a lawyer that can fight for human rights and fight for her people so i mean this is just one of hundreds of stories right right that we are involved in but that's what's going on and it's still happening right the other dark piece is organ harvesting which yeah you want to talk about it we can talk about (laughs) it now is this specifically with the nazarene fund yes okay then let's go there so you know isis has to make they make money and they're sick demons. And when they got, eventually got pushed off the territory that they had conquered, mm-hmm. right, in northern Iraq and parts of Syria, eventually they get pushed off, but they're still around. In fact, estimates show that they're larger than they were back in 2014, 15. Oh, wow. So they'll make a comeback and they still have a lot of these girls. They still have them. We're still doing rescue operations, right? We just did one a couple weeks ago. Mm. We're still extracting the women and the children. So when they lost all their oil reserves, what they were tapping into, stealing from Iraq and Syria, once they're moved out, how are they going to pay for their state building, right? For their caliphate they want to build. Right. Well, organs. You know, a a pediatric heart can be sold for up to like a quarter million dollars in the black market. Are you kidding? Like a child's heart is very difficult to find. You know, with other organs, you can use an adult, cut it in half, and not with a heart, obviously. Right. So, I mean, there's long lists of certain regions of the world that parents don't care. They don't want to know, but I don't want to wait in line. Right. And so they take these, these Yazidi children and just, you know, they cut them up and, and dispose of their bodies and sell the hearts. Right. When we got into that, we started recognizing we need to go outside of this, of the Middle East even. And we got intel about a similar situation going on in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And this was just, it's, we called it a baby factory, but what they were doing was kidnapping women, young women. A lot of them were mentally challenged because they just needed their bodies right. and just raped them incessantly, kept them perpetually pregnant, right. having babies. Right. And they take the babies and they sell the babies for organs or for sex or for ritual killings. In places in Africa, like witch doctory is alive and well. And they're like, you know, eating, like cutting out. Seriously? The, I'm not kidding. I didn't know that part. No, it's insane. Like we've worked cases in Uganda as well as West Africa. I mean, they'll cut the little kids' genitalia 
and sell that what? and hang it over their businesses because the gods will bless them. It's insane and sick and it's happening. Or you know, there's a case, a little boy who actually ended up getting adopted in the United States and he was kidnapped in Uganda and they took him and they just tapped his spinal tap and just sucked blood and what? sold it in little baggies for years until he lost, as he grew, he just lost all use of his arms and legs. His legs were completely gone and he was finally rescued and, and we have footage of all this we can show you, but no one, they thought he was, he can't walk, he'll never walk again. We just looked all over the world for any surgeon. Yeah. We found one in Salt Lake City, Shriners Hospital, Children's Hospital. And this orthopedic surgeon said, I think we sent out the x-rays. He's like, I think I can do it. So we got him there and broke almost every bone in his body to reset everything. And Catherine, my wife and I went and I remember we went to visit him and talk to him and it worked. Like everything got rehealed. He walks, he rides horses. And then while he was in Utah, he met a family and they adopted him. Oh, it's amazing. So there's hope, but it's so dark. And this operation in West Africa, we call it Operation Oplego. Mm. It's still ongoing. To date, we have rescued about 60 women so far and pulled them out of this, right? Out of the baby factory. And then dozens of babies as well. Right. Including kids that were kidnapped, not just you know, produced for that right. evil, but they also kidnap them and do the same thing. So it's a mass operation. It's very lucrative. High politicians are involved. Really? Mm -hmm. It's big money. I mean, you can't make that kind of money selling drugs or anything else. Right. It's just so, so dark. No one wants to ever talk about it. No. But we have footage of all this, all this stuff. And it's just, it's insane and incredible that this could be happening and that it could be happening and no one knows or wants to talk about it. It's dark. I mean, I, I understand it. Like people will tell me, okay, I have to catch up on the episodes. I just need a minute. I'm like, I understand. I do understand. And, and hopefully I'm trying to present this subject and the stuff that you're dealing with on a daily basis. I at least go in and out in a way that people will be okay to listen, be okay to come back again and hear the next episode because we have to educate and we have to spread awareness. Otherwise, these secrets, like part of their protection is there's still a secret. Right. No one knows about it. Right. So no one can do anything about it. And it happens in like the most obscure parts of the world. And I'm so tired. We have to, especially, our, you know, our country. Like I wish people could wake up and like there are no borders and boundaries here. A child is a child. Right. And I think somehow we mentally do something that's horrible. We just like, well, that happens over there. So I don't have to care. Yes, you do have to care. Okay. First of all, the United States, we are the demand, generally the number one demand for human trafficking. We're in the top three for destination countries. We consume Wait. more child sex. We do. Just so our audience knows, a destination country is a country where people travel from another country to go to as a destination to go have sex with kids. We're number three, right? We're in the top three. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So the US, just so you know, is a destination country. Yeah. Continue. And that connects to the stat we know that the United States is the number one consumer, sometimes producer. Uh -huh. of child exploitation material. And so that makes sense. If you're a trafficker, you're like, well, that's where we want to move the business. Right. Let's move the kids there, the market there. Right. And now what are we doing? New York, Oregon, other states are trying to copy the Netherlands, which is a horrible idea, and oh. legalize adult sex, thinking it's the libertarian thing to do. And you know, I'm pretty much libertarian, but this is not, I don't care what adults do. Right. But you're going to create sex hubs. Right. That's what you do. Very few people sell an adult and if they can upsell you to a child, they're going to. That's why there's child sex rampant in the Netherlands or anywhere where prostitution is legal. Mm. You're creating a market and that market grows and expands on its own whether you want it to or not. Right. 
And so here we are at top destination country and now we're flirting with legalizing it. Legalizing it. Yeah, and I just wanted to point out because you actually educated me about something, which is, look, if you make this, let's say it's an adult brothel and it's perfectly legal, then there's no reason for law enforcement to investigate in there and look in there for all the kids that are being held in the back because it's perfectly legal, so there's no reason. Right, you've legitimized traffickers. Exactly. They have a certificate on the wall that says, all the girls I have here are HIV cert you know, clean, you know, we pay taxes, right. and you're shaking hands, and you know, this false argument I hear people say, you know, well-intended but false is, no, that gets them closer. Now they can snoop around, and that's not how it works in the real world. They're already burdened. Every law enforcement in the U.S., especially outside the U.S. in developing countries, they're so burdened already. Right. So you're going to burden them more regulating and legitimizing the sex industry. Now they have less time and less resources to dig. Believe me, it's going to be shake his hand, sign the thing, give him the certificate. Right. And he's never going to show you the 10 kids he's got laced through five hotels or in right. a stable a mile away. And you're going to legitimize him and you're not going to go look. You're not going to, that's not how it works in the right. real world. I've heard people argue that with me. Well, what if we just legitimize it? It's like, this is why. Like, this is what we're talking about. This is why. Yeah, you legitimize it, you create the market and you make it, it's already impossible almost to regulate or find the kids. Now it's even more. You've regulated, you've created a market. Exactly. And in a place where there's already limited resources, exactly. it's not going to happen. No, thank you for bringing that up because that's a whole button for me. We have someone here with us today. His name is Rudy. Can you explain who Rudy is? And then I want to patch him in so our audience can... Yes, Rudy Atala is one of my personal heroes, one of my best friends. He's a Lebanese Christian, born in Lebanon, but dual citizen. Ended up coming to the United States, but witnessed insanity. I hope you can ask him about it Great. and recognize the, you know, the, the promised land that is American freedom and want to pay it forward and joined the military, became a colonel in the Air Force, but worked all sorts of intel and just amazing work in Africa, Middle East, obviously speaks, you know, fluent Arabic and can really get around. And so when we were building the Nazarene Fund and looking for the right partners, there's very few people that can do that kind of work, right? Yeah. You can't. It's not like OUR operators that we're accustomed to seeing. They're not going to go. They can't go into these places. No one that looks like me can go into these places. Right. So we need very specialized teams who understand the region, who are from that region, who have the heart to do the work. Mm -hmm. And Rudy has a team that's second to none in all of those areas. Skill, heart. I mean, these guys would trade their life for a Yazidi woman or child immediately. They'll go in anywhere. These guys have been shot up. They've been, I mean... They're just amazing, amazing guys. And so Rudy runs our operations. He's our chief operator for the Nazarene Fund, whether it's in Africa, Middle East, or anywhere else that we are operating. Beautiful. Rudy, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you loud and clear. Wonderful. Thank you for being on the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Thank so you. So I, I know that you're the chief operator for the Nazarene Fund. Can you explain a little bit to the audience sort of what that post entails? Yeah, so I manage day-to-day -day operations. We have teams in the Levant, which is Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. We have teams that have worked Afghanistan, Pakistan, and in, in West Africa. And so day-to-day, -day, I oversee operations, make sure that we are not a violating any local laws or international laws, because oftentimes when you operate in areas that are sanctioned or have other political issues with them, you have to really pay close attention to what you do on the ground. We focus a lot on tracking individuals that have been missing. In the case of, say, Iraq, Syria, some of the women that we are currently rescuing have been victims and were kidnapped as far back as 2015. So, you know, when, for example, when a little girl's kidnapped when, you know, she was eight, nine, 10 or 11, 
her facial features change as she gets older, six, seven years later. So in order to identify them, we spend a lot of time working with the family members and local institutions to ID them properly before we go in and, and execute a rescue. So day-to-day operations, making sure that we stay on course and we don't deviate or get ourselves in any hot water. Thank you. And Rudy, so I understand, or at least so the audience gets a better idea, because these kids and women and children have been kidnapped, right? So they're in all areas, I'm assuming, around that region and including other countries. So I'm assuming you have undercover operatives all over these places constantly gathering intel and reporting back. Is that sort of how it works? Can you sort of walk us through how does that work? How do you find someone that's missing in that part of the world and transferred to different countries and different camps? And it's not like you can walk into ISIS and like buy a cup of coffee. No, that's exactly right. How do they find this? How do they do this? Without giving away, obviously, Sure. It's very complicated, but I'll use an example of, for example, a small town in Syria called Hasaka. The local church in Hasaka is run by a priest who now has become a good friend. And, you know, from the time we started our operations back in 2015, you know, he's provided a list of individuals from his church, parishioners that have basically vanished. And so what we do is we try to figure out exactly where they were last seen, who last saw them, if any of them have reached out to family members, because sometimes they're kidnapped, but they'll send a text message to a family member or somebody. And then once we have a location, then we start to figure out exactly who this person is, if they're real or not, if they're posing as an ISIS, you know, that could be ISIS posing as an individual or not. Once we go through the whole vetting process and we effect a rescue, once we have that individual rescue, then we debrief that individual and say, do you know of any of these other girls that were with you that were kidnapped around the same time? And if so, when was the last time you saw one of them and with whom? And then we start to kind of work. It's a lot of investigative work. It takes time to put together. And this is why sometimes it takes us months. Some In other cases, it's taken us a year and a half, two years to really confirm, track, and then you know make sure that we have the right individual. And then we go into the planning phase of bringing them out. Once we do, then we have to register them with the United Nations. We have to make sure their paperwork's done. They go through thorough medical background checks and you know and then also we do some sort of psychological eval to make sure that where they're not entirely brainwashed in the case of uh, young boys that were kidnapped oftentimes they are indoctrinated and they are truly truly brainwashed some of them in cases many cases of yazidis the young boys have forgotten their native and they only speak arabic because they are taught and then drilled day in day out you know they memorize, they are forced to memorize the Quranic scriptures and they are taught a very different lifestyle, more or less an ISIS lifestyle. So we have to go through that process of making sure that they're not completely radicalized. If so, how do we de-radicalize them before we start working with other countries like Tim mentioned, Australia or Canada? And then they go through another set of vetting process and then we set up their paperwork and if they are a candidate for movements, then we move them. And so far, since 2015 till now, we've moved at least to Australia over 10,400, you know, Canada, several thousand. And then we've actually to date helped over 160,000 people. 
So it's been a fairly robust undertaking. And that's only Syria, Iraq. That's not Afghanistan. Wow. That's not West Africa. That's not other, other parts of the world. I don't know if you saw, but my jaw dropped at those numbers. Like yeah. That's incredible. It's incredible. You brought up Afghanistan, and I wanted to mention Afghanistan because when you know, the U.S. pulled out, everyone all of a sudden was very aware of the Taliban and what they were doing right. in Afghanistan now that no one was there to protect everyone. And I literally had people calling me going, okay, you, you know that guy, Tim, that you know that you're friends with? Can he get, like, I have some people there or I have this? And I was calling you and I know that you guys were knee deep in Afghanistan yeah. helping. Can you share a little bit about this just because this is recent in probably my audience's minds rather than ISIS that was a little further back. Can you yeah, explain absolutely. what you guys did? Because it was incredible. Yeah, we were very blessed. We raised the funding that we needed to extract the people. The The complicated part was shutting down Bagram Air Base and making HKIA or Kabul International Airport the only focal point where everybody can go to. Oof. So what happened was that that was the only runway from which people can head to and leave, you know, and many of them fear their lives. I mean, many of women that were lawyers or judges that had, you know, been there for a long time and prosecuted the senior Taliban leaders or senior Al-Qaeda leaders and put them in prison. Now these individuals were out of prison and they were looking for these women to execute or kill. In addition to oh. that, you had tier one operator commandos that we trained, interpreters, what's those that? types of Sorry, tier, one tier one operators are commandos, you know, or special forces type Afghans that we trained to work with our special forces on the front lines going after Al Qaeda or you know, ISIS, ISIS-K, ISIS Khorasan, or Taliban. So these are individuals that really put their lives on the line. But not only that, they, they also put their families' lives on the line because when an individual name is known and all of a sudden the bad guys come back and not only hunt down the individual, but they go after their entire family for execution, women, kids, everybody. So all of these individuals now had no place to go except one place. It was called Kabul International Airport. So I had to rapidly put a team on the ground, but also try to work with a carrier that had the diplomatic clearance by tail number to actually land and take off out of Kabul International Airport because you can't arbitrarily just fly any aircraft in and out without, you know, getting clearances from NATO on the ground, from, you know, our military forces on the ground so you don't get shot at by friendly forces, but also you're closing the gap and Taliban are moving in closer and closer. You don't want an aircraft shot out of the sky with a bunch of refugees wow. on board. So it turned into a real mess. Inside the airport in by middle of August last year, there were over close to 30,000 people inside the airport running around the tarmac, no bathrooms, no water, no Oof. food. They were defecating on the tarmac. Some of them died of dehydration from lack of water. On the outside of the gate, when the Marines came in and had to block the gate, you had multiple gates, Abbey Gate, North Gate, East Gate. Those are all different gates that were blocked from because we had movement of US military transport planes in and out. So people lined up on the outside and you had literally miles and miles of people. And the Biden administration was given an option by the Taliban essentially to say that we will not enter Kabul itself city and we will leave Kabul International Airport during your evacuations. Once you're done, we'll come in and take over. But the administration told the Taliban, no, you can take all of it. We don't want it. We just want to extract our no. people, even if you're there. That's what complicated things. 
So there was no standoff distance between the checkpoints and the gate. And so what happened is the Taliban got all the way up to the gates and the people were pushing. And what they were doing is they were taking people's passports. We had women had women and children had their American passports torn apart in front of them. Some of them were shot. Pregnant oh. women were giving birth on the street. There were women walking around with stillborns in their arms, walking to the gate, pushing oh. through people, trying to get through. We had individuals that had their hands lopped off because they were told that they were stealing bread or food because people were starving. It was absolute chaos. It was a sea of people with, you know, no food, no water, no bathrooms. And it was just Ugh. a free for all. And the Taliban were operating inside of all of this. And we were trying to get people past the checkpoints onto the tarmac to get people out. And it was an absolute nightmare. I, I was literally, I spent the first month and a half probably averaging between two to four hours of sleep maximum a night. The whole time I was on with all my guys and we helped other nonprofit organizations like Save Our Allies and, you know, Mighty Oaks. And we were not only helping our people, but we were helping others as well. And, you know, the people that we were responsible for, we extracted over 9,500 individuals. Plus, we helped another 3,000 individuals for, you know, we helped other NGOs move another 3,000. So over 12,700, give or take. We flew 35 different aircraft. What I had to do is I had to end up moving operations out of Kabul, and I moved them north to a place called Mazar Sharif, which is about 10 hours by bus ride up to away from the city. Because what happened is so many people were congregating towards Kabul that the Taliban now were looking for individuals coming into Kabul that were named like, you know, like I said, judges and female judges and right. lawyers. Target. We rescued the junior varsity FIFA team, soccer team. There were girls that were between 14, 15 years old. They were promised as bride prizes to Taliban fighters. We rescued them. We had to move them north and pull them out mm. of Mazar Sharif. We moved over 1,285 Americans. After the administration said, oh, all Americans were brought out, we saved everybody. And we still moved another well, 1,285 Americans. Those are, when I say Americans, they are American. They were carrying American passports or they were legal permanent residents of the United States. So it was a lot of effort. But currently, we moved them not directly to the United States. We moved them to interim Gulf countries. And they've been on the ground in these Gulf countries like the United Arab Emirates or Qatar for the past year. And We've built uh, dossiers on each individual, medical records, background, capabilities, family members, all that. And then we've been working wow. very closely, the State Department, with the Canadian government, with the Brazilian government, with the Australian government, German government, to make sure we find permanent homes for them. So they've gone through multiple vetting processes before we actually move them out. Uh, we're down now to approximately 2,000 Afghans left. And then once we're done with that last 2000, then we are done with that operation. We'll continue focusing on wow. helping people. Of those numbers, over 4,000 Christians, persecuted Christians were moved out as well. I can just go on and on. I mean, so Rudy, it was, this is, it's yeah. just incredible. I remember when I was talking to you, I think you were there and you're like, and I, there was a group that were stuck there and you're like, just 
try to get them to go to the airport, like tell them they have to get to the airport. And then you gave me like, I think it was Coop who gave me a whole checklist of the things that they had to fill out on themselves so that you knew who to look for and how to find them. Yeah, we, it we was had, a whole thing. We, we had guys that were on the phones with families, fathers saying, they're going to kill me. They're going to take my family, my wife. What do I do? What do I do? And sometimes we could direct them, go to the gate, don't go to the gate, you know, hole up here, go hide out. I mean, I had operators who were sobbing they, where they would actually hear them be killed Ugh. on the phone. And, you know, one thing it's so sad is, you know, the United States comes into Afghanistan. If you're 25 years old or younger, all you know are the freedoms that we have here in this country. Right. We promised like, a cover of freedom. So there was people that were so proud to, for the first time, be able to put Christian on their ID cards. Wow. Because before, the Taliban would never let you do that, right? So they're under the cover of freedom. And then that's all you ever knew. If you're 20 years, 25 years or younger, that's all you know. Right. And then one day to the next, it's just ripped from you. <laughs> and it's like, no more. And now that Christian on your card that we promised, the United States government promised you that you'd be protected. Yeah. No, now that's, that's your death warrant now. Oof. And this is, you know, Rudy's describing these things. They're crucifying people, skinning people. Jesus. And these, they're like, wait, we were free. No, well, you're not. You're right. not anymore. And so abandon our brothers who gave their risked their lives for our military right. for so long as scouts or as as tier one operators going alongside with our operators, hunting down terrorists, and then to just say, yeah, bye, you're gonna get killed now. Why? I mean. We had Bagram Air Force Base. We had lots of options at that point to get everybody out the right way. Right. Instead, you heard what Rudy said. I don't know. Like, we shut everything down yeah. and made it almost impossible for them to get out and then claim we got all the Americans out, which clearly is not true. Right. Because we came in after and got how many more Americans out? It was really tragic how the country just treated these people. Yeah. The other part that most people don't think about is now for well, a couple things. So... The Taliban now are in charge. They're running the country. Afghanistan used to be a centerpiece between us and a lot of big nations, including the Russians, on counterterrorism. So that was the centerpiece that brought us to the table to talk with other countries that we normally don't discuss massive, you know, our counterterrorism program. That all went away. Next door, Pakistan is a nuclear country. The last thing you want is a Taliban getting stronger and stronger and then pushing into a place like Pakistan and then getting their hands on military equipment that could be devastating. We destroyed some of it, but not all of it. And it's become a free for all for them to sell. But in addition to that, when you leave tier one operators, Afghans that we've trained, that we've trained in a lot of you know combat tactics, you leave pilots behind. We've trained them to fly helicopters and planes and right. combat missions, everything. Once you abandon these people, they become disgruntled. If at some point they get recruited by the terrorists, then what you have right. is now very highly trained, highly skilled individuals that have flipped sides now. And that becomes even a bigger problem for us in the long run. The problem is, is also we've created a big banner that essentially says, look, the United States came into Afghanistan 20 years later the Americans have failed and they failed miserably. Look how they ran with their tail between their legs and abandoned Afghanistan. Now, every terrorist group on the planet has been emboldened. And we actually right. saw chatter of that. Even not only radical Sunni extremist groups, but radical Shia extremist groups like, you know, Hezbollah and those types of groups saying, look, the Americans have a shelf life. Sooner or later, they'll leave. 
Let's recruit now. We're playing the long game. We can turn against these guys and we can win the war. That's the message that we left behind. I don't think anyone, first of all, thank you for sharing all this. I don't think any of us would even understand the long-term effects of what we did and what we left behind. And not only that, but most of us and most of the people listening to this podcast only know what we saw on the news or on social media, what was happening there. So to be able to give people a better understanding and to risk not only your guys' lives, but your operators' lives, their families, everything to get those women and children and families and everyone out is heroic beyond any words that I could ever, ever describe. Well, Rudy, Rudy really is. He's so modest, but you got to understand by the end of the evacuation, the extractions, Rudy was running the airport. The U.S. turned to Rudy and said, will you just run the airport? I mean, he's running, the, he's former Air Force, he understands how these things work, and he's got the connections and the experience. He's calling the shots. Fruit comes in and out. That's how chaotic it was where the government even turns to private citizen at this point. Right. And it was really helpful to us because we were able to maximize what we could do to get those 9,000 plus people out and into safety. Incredible. Incredible. And the fact that you haven't, you're not done yet, that you're not calling no. the operation complete yet. In the 20 plus years that we were in Afghanistan, obviously there's a lot of interaction between Americans and Afghans. So many Afghans converted, like Tim mentioned, some of them became Christians and now persecuted Christians. In 2019, as, as Tim you know, pointed out, in 2019, the Afghan government at the time had said that we're going to change the national ID and essentially put your religious affiliation. Many of the converts did not want to denounce Christ, so they said, we're going to put on our national ID that we are Christians. So now these are individuals that are hunted down. Some of them are still wow. in Afghanistan and hiding in, in pockets. We've been helping them. We've moved over 4,000 Christians, sorry, right. and we are still helping many that are, and we're helping, it's not only Christians, we're helping all Afghans from all walks of life. And we are, you know, we obviously, you know, are there for the human life and suffering that we're trying to prevent and help. So we've helped every type of family you can think of. Mm -hmm. And mostly a lot of young girls, they're major targets, young men is especially as well. They will get killed or get indoctrinated and forced into, you know, constricting into, Jeez. you know, a Taliban, you know, group or ISIS group or whatever. Thank you for explaining. You're mentioning the IDs before. I don't think everyone understood so that the government made it as the government ID for Correct. you to it's put your religion ID. on that, that mm -hmm. national idea. And that's how the Taliban could then find. It turned into a death warrant. Yeah. No yeah. one, I don't think anyone understood that. So thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. What yeah. happened to Marisol is oftentimes family members had passports, like the mother and father will have a passport and then the kids didn't have passports. They only had national IDs or they were mm. missing IDs. And so we had to go back and figure out their paperwork. You can't just arbitrarily pull people out without really knowing who they are, number one, and number two, because the last thing you want to do is create, you know, grab somebody who's on a terror list, bring them into a right. Gulf country and say, oh, look, we rescued somebody. And they go, no, I don't think so. They're on the bad guy list. Right. And now it becomes a big problem for us. So there was a lot of that. We had to go through paperwork. And many of these people were ripping their passports or ripping their national IDs so they wouldn't get caught by the Taliban and say, we right. don't have anything. Sorry. And then when we go to take him, they go, I'm sorry, I only have two IDs for 
these two individuals and my family members, but the rest don't have anything. And then the Gulf countries didn't want anybody without an ID or knowing exactly who they were. So it became oh, a real mess. nightmare in trying to sort through yeah. all of that. Um, so Rudy, we're gonna, we're gonna stop right now and we're gonna continue this conversation in our part two of this episode on the Nazarene Fund. Thank you so much. And to my audience, please tune in for part two next week.